The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. So far, we looked at the Beatitudes, and then we looked at what it is like to be the salt and the light of the world. And then my original plan, I was going to kind of combine things and move along a little bit faster versus going verse by verse. But when I started reading the next verses in verses 17 through 20, we're going to take some time through it because I believe it is really important of what Jesus is saying here. So today we're going to be in Matthew 5. We're going to look at verses 17 through 20. And Jesus says, do not think, excuse me, that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them He shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of stuff there. And what is this passage basically talking about? To sum it up, this is passage, these verses present to us, what Jesus thinks of the Word of God. And whatever Jesus thinks of the Word of God, that's what we should be thinking about the Word of God, right? And when Jesus was preaching, what was the Word of God? It was the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament. So this is Jesus' perspective on the Old Testament. And he says, not one jot or tittle will pass away, but that he came to fulfill it. You know, immediately Christians ask when we start talking about the Old Testament, is how much of it's biting for a Christian? You know, is it commanded to us and things like that? Do we have to fulfill all those things? How are these things important to us? Well, let's set the scene for, the, for what we're going to study. Christ appeared in Israel, right? He was born in Israel. Nobody paid attention to him. For the first 30 years of his life on earth, it was kind of private. We don't know what was happening until he started preaching. But as soon as he appeared in public and was baptized, and all of a sudden, all eyes are fixed on Jesus, right? We don't know. what. There's not a lot written about him. Did he get spanked by Joseph? We don't know. But there's not a whole lot about written about him. But when he appeared, all the leaders of Israel had to focus on him, and they heard him, and they watched him, because the way he described Scripture and preached it was very different from the rest, who were proud, boastful, hypocritical. They were looking to lift themselves up. And here comes this meek, humble Jesus, and saying all these things that they never heard of before. So what kind of ruler was this? Because, you know, in, in history, you would see that there was also false prophets. There's, Jesus wasn't only the one preaching. There was other people that standing up just like we have today and preaching their own thing. But what kind of prophet was this? Was he some kind of revolutionary? He's going to start some revolution? Because there's something different about Jesus. When he was teaching in Matthew 7, 29, it says, He taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. In Mark 1, 22, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. He didn't sound like anyone that they were hearing in their day. And their reaction was, well, is he really an Old Testament prophet? Because he doesn't sound like any of the Pharisees or the scribes that studied the Old Testament. 
He didn't echo their theology, and he didn't identify himself with the scribes or the Pharisees. So who is this guy? Because he doesn't have that Old Testament message, or so they thought, but yet he speaks with such authority. Did he come to subvert or get rid of all authority of the Word of God and then substitute his own? I mean, he was always at odds with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of their day too, right? Wasn't he? Let's look at some examples in Mark 12, 38 through 40. I mean, people are watching him, and then he tells them in their teaching in verse 38, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in marketplaces. They have the best seats in the synagogues, best places at the feast. But then he says, who devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. He says, they will receive greater condemnation. In Mark 3, the first six verses, he said, he entered the synagogue, and again, a man was there who had a withered hand, so they watched him closely. There's a man, but Jesus comes in. All eyes are on Jesus. Whether he would heal him on Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And then he said to them, all the Pharisees and all those people sitting there, is it lawful on Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he looked around at them with anger, they knew they were at odds. And then he was grieved by the hardness of their hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as a whole as the other. And look at the Pharisees' reactions. They went out immediately. They left the church. And they want to plot against him how they're going to destroy him. And in Luke 13, verses 14 through 16, it says, But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation, Why? Because Jesus healed on Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, There are six days in which men ought to work. Therefore, come and be healed on them, and not on the Sabbath day. And the Lord answered him and said, Hypocrite, not your majesty or pastor or... Mr. Pharisee said, hypocrite, does not teach one of you on the Sabbath lose his oxen, ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years, be loosened from this bond on the Sabbath? See, with these, Jesus coming along, speaks with authority. And what he's doing is throwing all these things that they held so highly, all these traditions of men, all these legalistic rules, he's just throwing them aside. But he kept putting emphasis on inward morality. He was a friend of publicans, sinners, worst riffraff in society. He was with them. Pharisees never did that. They don't eat with them. They don't socialize with them. So they have to be thinking, is this some kind of revolution, some religious revolution going to happen? Is he getting rid of all this, tearing down the Old Testament? Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they were always expounding on what? The law, right? And here's Jesus speaking with authority, and he's talking about grace and mercy, Pharisees, scribes were binding people to the law. Jesus was busy forgiving people. They were all talking about the outside, but Jesus always talking about the inside. But what we need to understand, Jesus wouldn't lower the standard of God's word. He would actually raise it. He would raise it. And he says, this is nothing new. And I'm not setting aside one jot, one tittle of the law and the prophets until it is fulfilled. Because in their thinking, the standard was so high, what they did was actually lowered it. They didn't raise it by adding all these rules. And Jesus was thinking they dragged it down so low, they turned it this internal law into this external thing, he was going to drive it back inside. And matter of fact, Jesus Christ was more committed to the Old Testament than any other Jew, Pharisee, or anything like that. It's very important 
to see that Jesus is supporting the Old Testament. Because in our day, we just don't even want to read the Old Testament. We're New Testament Christians. Well, let's take a look what applies, what doesn't apply, and how it applies to us. Because you see in verses 3 to 12, we studied the Beatitudes gives us the characters, the characteristics of those that belong in his kingdom, how you entered the kingdom, poor in spirit, meekness, so forth. And then the next verses, he's talking about being salt and light. And when we read those, if you're honest with yourselves, you'd say that's not easy to live like that. It's impossible, really. Unreasonable, right? You know who else is unreasonable? My wife. She actually expects me to live out everything I preach. But it's hard, isn't it? Even when we know the truth, it's still hard to live it out. But immediately in these verses, he tells us the answer how you can live a life like that. And that is uphold the word of God. Verse 17, do not think, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. And pay attention here. He says, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. He doesn't say I came to set it aside or give you new things. He says to fulfill. You see, the Word of God becomes the standard of righteousness. He gives us guidelines, principles, requirements. And we can't just drop all of it. So what we need to understand, what Jesus is mentioning or what he is saying here is he's actually going to raise it back up to where it belongs. He says, I'm not going to destroy those things. But how can we be salt and light? How can we be all we have to be? By keeping God's word. Absolute obedience to authority of the word of God. And he introduces a thought here. And that's the key to righteousness, is keeping God's word. So, to the regular folk that day, who were the righteous, most righteous people? Who did they look up to in society as holy and so forth? It was the Pharisees, right? But look what he says in verse 20. He tells average folks that, For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will no by by no means you will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, wait a minute. They're the most holiest people, the scribes. You know, they translate the law and so forth, and they're the you know PhDs of theology in those days. And now you're telling the average fisherman that he has to exceed that righteousness to enter the kingdom. But you need to understand the kind of righteousness the Pharisees have will never cut it. You see, their righteousness was all external and based on traditions of men. Mine, he says, which they didn't understand, is eternal. And it's based on the law of God. That's the difference. So if we're going to be salt, we're going to be light, we have to truly live a righteous life. So he didn't appeal or put away the Old Testament. He just restated its absolute and binding character. You know, people say, well, what about later on when he says, you have heard it said, you guys know those verses? You've heard it said, no, they are the old. And then Jesus gives them something new. Well, let me just give you one example because I say, you know, go on. Well, let's look at one of them in Matthew 5, 27, 28. He says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman or lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. What is Jesus doing here? Is he saying the Old Testament no longer applies? I'm giving you a new covenant saying you can commit adultery now? No. In verse 28, he's just lifting it back up. You see, the verse 27 says you shall not commit adultery. That's just talking about the 
external. But he wants you to be righteous on the internal. He reminds you that says, hey, if you already looked at a woman with lust, you already committed adultery. He's raising the word of God back to where it belongs. He's restating their original intention because the rabbis of that day, they perverted the Old Testament and all the laws God has given them. And by adding all these things, they actually lowered it. So Christ is lifting it back up. So in these verses, 17 through 20, next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about the, you know, the authority of the law of God. That's what I want to talk about today. But there's also the permanence of this law, you know, the purpose of the law. So we will talk about several weeks about the law, because I think it's important for us to understand how the Old Testament applies to us today. And we have to have the same view that Jesus did of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So he's talking about really the superiority, the supreme thing in verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So Jesus is saying God's law, God's scripture, the word of God is absolutely first place. And it's interesting that he was preaching all these things. Uh, you know, you have to be poor in, poor in spirit, meekness, and so forth. We discussed those things. And this kind of a, I think, you know, mind-blowing to them. And then he's talking about being salt in the light. They never heard anything. And then he says, do not think. Why does he say that? Because God can read minds and hearts. And obviously there's people in that audience thinking, hey, he's going to get rid of all these, all these rules and regulations, all this Old Testament. But he says, no, don't think that I came to destroy. I came to fulfill. They were thinking, oh, well, here's here, set aside all these laws. But we need to understand, and even if we're Christians today, that God has not set aside his principles in the Old Testament. If you're a Christian today, they're still the same. And in fact, Jesus lifted up the law, the Old Testament, so high. And what did that end up doing? It exposed all the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, of the leaders, of the religious leaders of that day, because he lifted it back up. Look at Matthew 5.20. Again, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes, Pharisees, by no means you will enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's look at some of the external righteousness that these Pharisees had. In Matthew 6.1, uh, he says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you won't have a reward for Father in heaven. So you see, they weren't doing it from the external because they truly cared. They wanted praise from people around them that they were so good. In Matthew 6, 5, it says, when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites. Well, who's the hypocrites? Well, he describes them. For they pray standing in synagogues, corners of the street, that that might be seen by men. You see that? They're even praying just to look holy in front of people, but they were not. In verse 16, he says, Moreover, when you fast, do be not like the hypocrites. So you see, he keeps calling them hypocrites. Wouldn't you be offended if somebody kept calling you a hypocrite? And here you are, supposed to be somebody righteous and holy in the society. But he's saying, whenever your righteousness, whatever it is, it should be on the inside and not on the outside. If it's just external, it's the phony, baloney religion. And in really, in, if we continue in Matthew 15, he was talking to the scribes and the Pharisees, and it says, then he, the scribes and the Pharisees who were in Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, and there's a conversation with them, but look how he answers them. Hypocrites. You can read the conversation, but I'm just saying, hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you saying, this is Isaiah prophesizing about them, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So I'm going to ask you a question. You came here, you're singing, you're praising him and so forth, but where's your heart? See, all those things don't matter. You got the external down, but your heart is far from me. And if you go to chapter 23, you can just read all about their hypocrisies and so forth. So he arrives and opens this sermon up on the hill, says, my standard righteousness, and here's all this thing, and he's saying, 
I didn't come to put away those things. Anyone who doesn't live by God's standards, who substitutes them by man-made systems, is just a spiritual phony. And verse 17 says, I don't come to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to smash it down, pull it to pieces. He came to fulfill it. And that's very different. That's very different. He came to fulfill it. And he's saying this law of God is supreme. Nothing surpasses it or takes its place. And the reason is, first of all, the law was authored by God. So if God said something, how can Jesus be against it? And you look at that, this says the law or the prophets. You see, in Exodus, God laid down the law, the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 verses, it says, And God spoke all these things, sayings, I am your Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So who's the author? How is he, who's, who's authoring this? Who's presenting himself here? God. In verse 3, he says, You shall have no other gods before me. Is the Old Testament put away? We can have other gods? There's no other gods. In Malachi uh, chapter 3, verse 6, God says, I am the Lord. I do not change. So you see, the law of God is not some kind of thing that changes or adjusts to human opinion designed to fit whatever's happening in our society of that time. The law of God never changes. It says, I am your Lord God. You have no other gods before me. That's uncomprom- There's no compromise with that. He created all things. He created all the laws in nature that govern things. So in that day, when you say the law, you know, typically... It meant three things. You're either talking about the Ten Commandments, you're talking about the Moses' five books. But most usually, society of that day, because it became so wish-washed, when they said the word law, they weren't speaking of the Ten Commandments. They weren't speaking of the five books of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. They were talking about this oral scriptural traditions that they have been receiving from the Pharisees, these different rabbis. So, when they used the word law, that's what all these people were thinking about. So when he said, I'm not coming to destroy it, they're thinking, not thinking about the Ten Commandments, not thinking about the true law of God, they're thinking about these things. And in Mark chapter 7, verse 8, you're seeing this, they're arguing with Jesus And he says, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of man, washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. So, you know, you laid aside the commandment of God, you put it down so low, and you replaced it with all these things. And in Matthew 15, too, you know, they were asking Jesus, why do your disciples transgress, pay attention here, transgress the tradition of elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And in verse 3, he answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? You see, the previous verse said they were even admitting this. They were transgressing the disciples' tradition of who? Elders, not commandment of God. So the tradition of elders is not that important. But he's saying, why are you transgressing the law of God? But they thought by keeping the tradition of elders, they're keeping the commandment of God. Why would they do that? Because they had to create something. They knew the law was so high. And let's say you believe you're only going to be in heaven because you keep the law, right? Because that's what they had. And they thought, hey, you keep the law, you're going to get to heaven. But the law is inward, 
and it demands righteousness. It demands some kind of character, and you realize you're a rotten person. You can't do that. But if I could get a whole bunch of rabbis to make a bunch of rules, keep piling up rules and all those things that we can keep or try to attempt to keep, we can convince ourselves that we're pretty good. We're doing all right, right? Just make up a whole bunch of rules. For example, they said you couldn't work on Sabbath because Jesus, you know, the God said keep the Sabbath and keep it holy and so forth. Don't work on Sabbath. They got together and said, well, let's define work. What's work? You couldn't carry a burden on Sabbath day. Well, what is burden? You know, I was looking up the scribal law, and it said burden is a food equal to the weight of a dried fig. Burden is milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on the wound. All this stuff, there was all this limit. You know, you can have ink if you can write two letters. Carrying more ink than that, that's, that's, that's considered a burden. Can you imagine just trying to handle all that stuff? Then they decided about healing. Well, they decided it's healing on Sabbath. Is that work? Well, basically, they decided you can put a Band-Aid on a scar, but you can't put ointment. These strict Orthodox Jews made up all these legalistic rules and regulations. So when Jesus is saying, I have come and not destroy the law, the law they were thinking about is not the law that Jesus was talking about. And if there is a law that he wanted to wipe away, it is that phony kind of stuff. So he wasn't talking about the traditions of men. He was talking about the law of God. The law or the prophets in verse 17. That is the reference to the entire Old Testament. It's used 12 times in the New Testament. So whenever we see the words or terms law, law of God, law of prophets, scriptures, word of God, they're all referring back to the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament yet. It's the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying, I didn't come to destroy the whole law. I come to fulfill. And all this law and prophets refers to the Old Testament before Jesus is coming because you can see in Luke 16, 16, it says the law and the prophets were until John. And when he started preaching, the kingdom of God has been preached. Everyone is expressing it into it. So in Matthew 11, 13, it says the same thing. It's, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So before John, before Jesus' time, anything that's referring to law or scriptures, it's referring to the Old Testament. And then he preaches the kingdom of heaven. And he himself fulfilled that kingdom. There's more direct statements in Luke 24, 27. Jesus is talking about himself, and he says in Luke 24, 27, in the beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Remember that story when he was walking on the road to your mouse? And he's talking about Moses, beginning the books of Moses, to all the prophets, and what's in those books? All things concerning himself. In Luke 24, 44, it says, says to them, there are, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which are written where? In the law of Moses, in the prophets, in the Psalms, concerning me. So he's not destroying. He is fulfilling. You see, everything in the Old Testament really points to Christ. And Philip, in John 1.45, says, Philip found Nathanael, said to him, We have found him. Who did they find when they came to talk to Jesus? We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So this is Moses speaking to his people in Deuteronomy. He says, you know, 
In Deuteronomy 4.13, he declared to you a covenant. He commanded you to perform what God commanded them to perform, the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 4.14, it says, The Lord commanded me at a time to teach you statues and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. So God laid down the law. There's the Ten Commandments. God's not putting them aside. Jesus is not putting them aside. Then he said, Moses, all those other prophets, the, the basic Ten Commandments, you have statues, ordinances. So Moses, from the Ten Commandments, under God's inspiration, developed ceremonial and judicial systems for Israel. And what prophets did, they came along and just restated all those things that God gave them in the law. The moral law, this is what we need to understand, was for all people. But then there's also this judicial law, that's for Israel. There's also ceremonial law, these statues, that's also for Israel's worship of God. So stay with me. I know this is kind of boring, but I promise you it'll get exciting later on. But we need to understand that the moral law is based on the Ten Commandments and great moral principles laid down, they were laid down once and forever. That's it. But the rest of the moral law and all those things, the judicial law and so forth, they were built from that, and that's very important. Because God said, I set you aside, I set you apart from the rest of the nations. You're going to be unique and then he gave him judicial laws, ceremonials, laws, and so forth. He's going to deal with them as a nation. They're God's chosen nation. And this is the law to govern their behavior. This is how they're going to be different than everybody else. And then he gave him this ceremonial law, the rituals they had in their worship of God. And when Jesus was talking about the law and the prophets, he was talking about all those things. Principles, patterns symbols, just not the traditions of men. Again, it is high up because, first of all, it was authored by God himself. Then this law is affirmed by the prophets. Who are the prophets? Prophets that speak for God. They hear from God directly. We don't have prophets these days. As we heard, the last prophet was from until John. Best example I can give you is in the book of Exodus. You know, Moses had a problem speaking like I do. But he said, I'm going to give you Aaron. And look what he says to Aaron. He should be your spokesman to the people. And he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be him as a God. So what's happening is God's going to talk to Moses. Moses is going to take it down to Aaron, and Aaron's going to take it to his people. So he's illustrating to us what a prophet is. In Jeremiah 1.7, Jeremiah was saying the same thing, kind of making excuses, I'm young. And he says, for you shall go to all who I'm going to send you, and whatever I tell you, you shall speak. In Hebrews 1.1, he says, God who at various times and at various ways spoke in the time past to the fathers by the prophets. So it's important we understand the law and the prophets. Why? Because they all said what God said. So why would Jesus be tearing any of it down? It's affirmed by the prophets, but most importantly, which piece they were missing, it's accomplished and fulfilled by Christ. If you look at verse 17, the last word is fulfilled. I'll fulfill. And folks, he will. First coming, second coming, he's going to fulfill the whole entire testament, judicially, morally, ceremonially. And because Scripture finds its deepest meaning in Christ, all of it. You know, there's not just the four Gospels, there's 66 Gospels. People say, well, Old Testament is not complete. It is complete. It's all everything God wanted it to be. And the king came to fulfill it. And John 5.39 says, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. 
So they're searching the scriptures thinking they have external life, and they're missing the point because Jesus is saying, I am that life. They're testifying of me. Jesus was not against the Old Testament. He was absolutely for it. But he doesn't say that he just for it. But if you really think about it, the Old Testament is for him too. It testifies of him. Everywhere you find in the scripture, like Hebrews 10.7 says, Then I should behold, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Volume of the book is written of me. Luke 24, 27, it says, In the beginning, at Moses and all the prophets, what were the things in Moses and all the prophets? Things concerning himself. In verse 44, then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. All these things must be fulfilled. Which things? The things in the law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms concerning me. So he's not destroying it, as he's saying in verse 17. He's coming to fulfill it. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God, all the promises of God, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. So everything is regarding Jesus. He's everywhere. So let me say this. If you read in the Old Testament, you read in any book in the Old Testament and you don't see Jesus there, you're doing it wrong. In Genesis, he's the seed of the woman. Exodus, he's what? Passover lamb, right? Leviticus, he's the high priest. And Joshua, he's the captain of salvation. Kings Chronicles, he's the king, reigning king. Nehemiah, he rebuilds the broken wall. Psalms, he's the Lord as our shepherd and so forth. Uh, Proverbs, he's the great wisdom. Isaiah, he's the prince of peace. And Daniel, he's that fourth guy in the furnace. He's everywhere. And Jonah, he's the great missionary. I mean, every book contains Jesus. In Habakkuk, he's the great preacher for revival. If my people humble themselves, right? He is the theme of the Old Testament in every bit of his story. So how does he fulfill all the law? How does he fulfill the Old Testament, really, Ready for this theological answer? Just by being himself. By being the fulfillment. It's not necessarily but what he said or did so much. It's who he was, really. Because who he was is what drove him to say things and do things. He came to bring in everlasting righteousness by being the Messiah that the law predicted. The law prophesied about. In Leviticus 26.46, he gave them the judicial law, various rules to govern their behavior, all their legal codes, what priests must do in the temple and so forth. These are the statues in Leviticus 26.46 and judgments and laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by hand of Moses. Do you see that? made statues between Israel. In Psalm 147, 19, it says, He declares His word to Jacob, His statues and His judgments to Israel. So again, to understand this, why people say it doesn't apply to us Christians today, it does, but there are certain things that apply to Israel. His judicial law set them apart. And how did he fulfill those things? Because he can't lay them aside, right? And if he didn't fulfill those things, then they're binding to us today. But they're not. Jesus fulfilled. How did he get rid of these judicial law, ceremonial law? By dying on the cross. See, this judicial law, his people... That went away. Why? Because Israel rejected the Messiah. Remember, Jesus was looking at Jerusalem saying, how much I wanted to gather you. But you didn't want to. So today, there's the church. Now, understand me correctly. 
Jesus and God is not done with Israel yet. But for time, he will deal with them at the later time. But for now, we are the church. That's his people. So those laws, they were fulfilled because they rejected them. So he's no longer dealing with them as a nation. So be with me, but he will. They're still God's people. I'm not saying the church was replaced by, you know, Israel was replaced by the church. That's not so. But for the time being, yes. Because he will come back and redeem that nation again and deal with them again as a nation. But for this time, Jesus died on a cross and that judicial law came to a halt. There is no more national people of God right now. And there will be this new man. It's called the church. Matthew 21, 43 says, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. But the foundations of this judicial law are in the moral law. The moral law still applies, and we'll take a look at that here. So judicial law is done. What about the ceremonial law? How did that get fulfilled? Again, By dying on the cross, he was rejected by his nation. He came to his own. They did not recognize him. Ceremonial law, he did that also by dying on the cross. And remember when he died, the veil in the holiest of holies was torn from top to bottom. That's all their traditions, laws, only holies of holies, a priest could only answer once, once a year and he had to repent of all his sins and pray for the sins of the nation and so forth. But in Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness now, nobody had boldness to enter the holiest of holies back then. Having boldness now to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. He fulfilled this laws, judicial laws, became a victim. His name, his nation rejected him. His own rejected him. He fulfilled the ceremonial law. He fulfilled all those laws. He ended those ceremony laws because we no longer worship God with the blood of goats and bulls, right? Can you imagine that if we did that today? Bring in your goats. I would pass away. Like, you know, as soon as I see some blood, I would not be a pastor of this church if there's still bulls and goats. As soon as I see a little drop of blood, I'll probably pass out. But there's one element of God's law abiding still, and that is the moral law. See, he didn't come to undergird everything. This law will be in effect until we see him face to face. It's always binding. In Hebrews 7, verses 18, 19 says, For on one hand, there is a knowing of the former commandment because of its weakness and its profitableness. So all those killings of goats and sheep, that was not very profitable. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing of, in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the law is saying there's, on the other hand, bringing better hope. See, the law couldn't do what Christ did. So in the law, we had a picture. We had a picture. In Jesus, we see a reality. In Hebrews 8, and verses 8 to 9 says, because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the day when I took them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue my covenant, I disregarded them, says the Lord. Do you see this? He disregarded them. They're no longer a nation. And again, I say that with an asterisk. In other words, God's going to have a different covenant with them when he returns. 
And the covenant is not just going to be about the foods and all those things that he gave to the house of Israel. If you look at Hebrews 9.10, it says, Concerned only with foods and drinks and various washings and fleshy ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. See, those things are going to go away. But God's moral law is still in effect. So Jesus fulfills every part of the law. He came, stood there that day on the hillside. And the whole Old Testament, which everybody missed, is pointing to Jesus. And it was pointing that the law itself could not make anyone righteous. And we read that in the New Testament, so we're a lot more educated than the people of that time because we have the New Testament. And Jesus had to come and do what the law couldn't do, and that is grant righteousness. You see, in Galatians, Paul writes and says, therefore the law, again, you see that law in the New Testament, Paul's writing, what's he referring to? To the Old Testament. That old law was a tutor to bring us to what? To Christ, that we might be justified by faith. And then verse 25 says, but after faith, we no longer need the tutor. Because when you receive Christ, acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, and you're, you're led by the Holy Spirit, you don't need the tutor to law. Because this Holy Spirit will guide you in that moral law. See, the judicial law, ceremonial law, they were fulfilled and set aside. That ended at the cross. But the moral law was fulfilled by Christ and still being fulfilled through his disciples today because we're, keep, we're keeping here. And look at Romans 8, uh, verse 4. It says that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled, fulfilled in us. So there's some kind of law that needs to be fulfilled in us. The law is from the Old Testament. The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the Bible says if we walk in the Spirit, we will fulfill this law of righteousness. So when we read the Old Testament and we think about the law, do you see... Jesus Christ in that book because he's the only one that can give us this righteousness to be fulfilled by the law. That's why he says none of this is going to be dismissed, not little jot or whatever. Everything has to be fulfilled. But we can't fulfill it, but he did the two laws for us, the ceremonial law, the judicial law. And now he's saying this moral law, you can still fulfill it. I fulfilled it. But you can fulfill it through me. In Romans 10, 4 it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Judicial law is done. Ceremonial law is done. i got to get this righteousness law. How am I going to do it? I'm not going to be able to do it. Well, it's ended. Because remember, our righteousness... It's like dirty rags. But he gives this righteousness that can fulfill the law to everyone who believes. He alone can enable you and us to fulfill God's law and empower us to have that kind of character that he demands. And because Christ fulfilled the law, he says, I don't come to destroy it. Not one thing is going to be dismissed from it. And you see, when God forgives our sins, God doesn't overlook the law. God doesn't say, well, the law doesn't matter anymore. Because Jesus paid our sin debt. He paid it in full. The law still matters. God doesn't overlook it. And Jesus came to fulfill the law for me. He came to fulfill the law for you. And he paid my failure, our sin debt. And this righteousness of the law is worked in every one of us 
who have Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Isn't that wonderful? So thank goodness the Israel, you know, they rejected Jesus. I know I'm kind of being mean or something like that. Some people can take my words out of context. Because if they didn't, we'll have to do all those things. And I can't remember, you know, my wife's birthday. You have to remember all these things. Thank goodness they were fulfilled by Christ. Thank goodness they rejected him because then it was done. Ceremonial things. But this moral law, when we have the Holy Spirit, that process of justification where we grow spiritually, reminds us, convicts us of sin, to continually repent, to grow. Who's doing that, us or the Holy Spirit that's living in us? And that can make us righteous. And folks, that's wonderful news. And if somebody's here has never done that, I would strongly urge you to do that. Open your heart to let Jesus into your life. Receive him as Lord and Savior. He fulfilled all the prophecies, and we didn't talk about all the prophecies that he fulfilled. Over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament Jesus fulfilled, and mostly they were fulfilled by his enemies. Do you guys know that? It's interesting. There was a statistician, his name was Peter Stoner, and he did a statistic just fulfilling eight of the prophecies by one person. And he said if you stack up a silver dollar, three high, the state of Texas, and then you pick up one coin, that is the probability of one person fulfilling just eight prophecies in the Bible. He fulfilled over 300, folks. He fulfilled the Old Testament, all of it, and he did not disregard it. And he can fulfill the deepest need of a human being to fulfill your needs, give you peace. That is, if you come to him today. Let's pray.